You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Nipe here with always typical lydia today's show we're going to be doing the 2009 haunting film very specifically titled the haunting in connecticut not a haunting in connecticut no not a haunting not the ghost only shows up in connecticut it is just the haunting that took place in connecticut i like these very specific haunting titles Amityville horror. It's not Detroit horror. Yeah, you're not going to get it mixed up. Not like Hull House. That could be anywhere. That could be this house. That, that could be this house. Though this ghost is saying, no, 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 no. I'm haunting. It's Connecticut. I'm a very, I, I'm not going anywhere else. It is just here. So what do I know about New England? What do I know about Connecticut? What could be, people could be confused. They'd be like, the haunting of Connecticut. Like, which one? Man, <laughs> we got so many. <laughs> I just like that the idea that a bunch of ghosts got together and agreed. No, 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 we're doing the Connecticut thing. Yeah, yeah. We're just going to stick around here. Yeah. Or people could retitle it The Fake Haunting in Connecticut. <laughs> they could call it The Fake. I want to be that asshole. <laughs> I do want to be that asshole. Not unlike the Amityville Horror, which this follows hot on its heels. Mm-hmm. And it falls hot on its heels in, in my mind as well. If you're going to watch a bunch of movies about the true stories. This was the true story of Alan and Carmen Snedeker? Snedeker? I, I, I think you got it. It's a really difficult last name to say. Unless you knew them. So you'd probably just be like, oh, the Snedekers. Snedeker? Yeah. Snedeker. It's like Connecticut, right? <laughs> it's just as bad. <laughs> So, Alan and Carmen had a house that was more... They lived there for two years, though. It wasn't like this 29-day or 19-day thing where people, like the Lutz family, just hightailed it out of the haunted house. They stayed there for like two fucking years. The Lutz family were like, Lutz, get out of here. (laughs) And the Snedekers were like, I like getting anally raped by demons on the reg. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. For two fucking years. For two fucking years. This film, by the way, I I hate to keep hawking my old pieces. However, The Haunting in Connecticut was the genesis of the piece that I written years ago about true story based on a true story horror films. Um, The Haunting in Connecticut part was really more or less talking about the differences between what supposedly occurred in real life versus what actually occurred in the movie. Um, Whereas the Amityville portion of that piece was actually talking about the real murders that occurred in the house before the supposed hauntings uh, took place. Big difference is, is even though there's, there's a a host of people that will say that it was, it was a hoax and and that the people uh, were lying or confused, including neighbors and family friends and and people who have stayed at the house, people who have lived in the house since Uh, there has been no occurrences that have been going on in this household. It still uh, is one of those situations where it wasn't blown wide open as a hoax and it wasn't dramatically ended 
in the same way that the Lutzes were. They just moved. They, they just, just moved. They just moved after our friends, Ed and Lorraine Lor- uh, Warren, performed an exorcism. I like how you call them our friends after we ripped them a new one what, for two episodes. Now yeah, like, really, because we, we brought them up in The Conjuring 2 and we brought them up in the Amityville. And anytime that you are talking about real life ghost stories that have been turned into film, whether or not the Warrens were in the movies or not, they just were involved with so many cases. They were so famous for doing this type of thing, which is precisely why they were brought on. Yeah. Yeah. Even though this might have been a little bit out of their wheelhouse, because most of the other ones are just, there's an evil presence and these like very subtle things happen. This is, we are being raped by demons all of the time. And the mop scene where the mother is mopping and all of a sudden the son sees blood slopping around the floor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are some pretty visceral things that Mm -hmm. I think that Ed and Lorraine Warren might have been a little bit spooked by themselves they called in other people they called in psychologists they did they pawned this one off because it was just a little bit too crazy yeah lorraine was clutching her pearls oh was she ever or all of her pieces of the cross she wears (laughs) they empower her you know yeah i suppose with what who knows but this house was empowered it was empowered Bodies stacked like sandbags on the fucking walls. Which is not a bad... You know, I was thinking, 100 bodies. I don't know if I could... You know, we're trying to figure out how many bodies we could pack in the walls in this room. Yeah. It's about the same size. Yeah, I feel as though the room in the, the, the house in the haunting of, in Connecticut was way bigger than this room. This room's not small, but at the same time... You think so? I think... I think like the they, size of the two rooms, like the dining room and the living room. I'll grant you that you could probably... I will say that you could, stacking them, interlocking with each other, I think you'd be surprised that you could probably only get 30 to 50 bodies tops. Per wall. Per wall. Per wall. I want them stacked in there tight, Wes. Uh, no n- no uh, packing peanuts in between the crevices. No packing Just peanuts? body I all the way up and down. Any good vibes getting in. Let me ask you in. this. Can we dismember some of the bodies and use them as packing peanuts? Oh, that would be cool. They didn't do this in this movie, though. These oh. were full-on bodies. Um I really enjoyed this film. I had watched it. I rented it when it first came out. I liked the trailers. Uh, there were disappointments. I'm going to say right off, a lot, some of the acting is not on point mm. in this film. Some of the acting is just kind of atrocious. Um, a lot of the acting is kind of atrocious. <laughs> but I liked it be, like despite all that, just because I love the seance angles of this. I love the mortuary angles of this. I like a lot of the angles of this. And it's not even that I come away from the movie being like, well, this is the little plot that could. And there would probably be, you know, a a better story to be made out of this script. I didn't quite come away from it like that, which would be the mark of, of a real flub. So it flubs here and there. But all in all, I still do enjoy this movie to the point that I had purchased it and have watched it several times because the first time i watched it, i was like oh that's a nice sunday sleeper but it kept coming back to me and no one's quite done i think a a haunted or possessed house 
with crazy machinations, much like Hull House and the Belasco House, where it's not only that the house is haunted or that something evil went on there, it's that both of those things had one to do with the other. And I like that interleaving of the history of the house. Someone had a grand scheme to keep it super evil and make it more evil than it was, and it's just persisted through time. I really like that sort of story. This film was coming out and, and really was, even in 2009, these types of haunting films that had been getting released with a fair amount of regularity. Um, let's not forget that even the Amityville Horror was was remade only just a couple of years before The Haunting in Connecticut came out. And, uh, and of course, all of this kicked off in 1999 with The Sixth Sense. And uh, haunting movies became in vogue again. And a lot of people would argue thanks to the 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 juggernaut that is Blumhouse, it never really went away. There's other horror movies that you can definitely enjoy getting made all the time, but just in terms of, of, of films coming out in and around here. In and around here, you had films like White Noise and all of the remakes of Pulse and uh, The Eye and bizarre haunting films like uh, The Return. There, there was all kinds of, of movies coming out Around this time. So when I were was watching The Haunting in Connecticut, it was a rental for me. This was just another for the pile. This was just another film that was part of a series of films in my mind that featured spooky dark house. Maybe it is or is not based on a true story. Not really relevant. I used to joke with my friends and saying, you know it's one of these movies when someone enters a room and turns on the light and it doesn't actually illuminate the light, it only illuminates the immediate area that the light bulb is. <laughs> and you'd always say, why did they even turn on the light? Like it made no fucking difference in this room whatsoever. Uh, one of my uh, girlfriends at the time was really into these types of films. And even though at the time I was looking for something different from my horror, I did like a good ghost story every now and again. So we would watch them much like you though. I did watch this, thought it was pretty cool and then forgot about it. But I kept thinking about it again and again. And when it, I'd saw it again on television and I thought to myself, man, you know what? I really like this fucking movie. Mm -hmm. This is really pretty good, I think. And it had enough unique angles in it. Because when you told me that you were going to watch an early 2000s or, or one of the, the haunting movies in the aughts, I was kind of assuming that I was going to be put in front of a black and white ghost moving at you know, 24 frames a second. That type of thing. Crawling on walls. Uh, long hair ghost long face. hair ghost face that type of stuff that was just what was in vogue and also uh the the first time i'd ever even seen ghosts walking and moving like that was in uh, the william castle remake the housing on, uh, the house on haunted hill yes it was that because that was like the dark one because they remade the haunting and it was like a goofy cgi thing but then there was another one that had like randomly Chris Kattan in it. And I was like, wow, this is actually very violent and dark. Not Vincent Price at all. So when I saw this movie for sale at a grocery store for $2.99, well, I thought, well, why not? It's worth it. It's definitely worth it. And I have to say, we normally don't talk about DVDs 
extra features. We don't. I don't know why we never do. Because no, and it's because we don't rely on what the physical release offers us, other than the fucking movie. Yeah, ex- exactly. So I have lots of things in my collection that I'm just as happy with. That really just. It's just the movie, and if I'm lucky, there's a trailer. Or but, we have things like my pieces box set, which yeah, is like oh, gorgeous, heaven. right? Yeah, yeah. But again, the, you spend your money where your your loyalty lies, in a way. Exactly. And at the end of the day, when it comes to this show, we talk about the movie. We're not usually talking about the physicality of the release, but here we are. We here we are talking about the only reason why I want to do this is because this DVD cost me a pittance. It cost me fucking nothing. And there are some great documentaries on this. I really think that uh, Maple, this Maple release, is the people that distribute it. And there is um, three documentaries on this that I think are worth the money. Like, you know, you might even want to spend $10 on this. I'm just saying, if you guys are out there and you see uh, the Haunting in Connecticut uncut version on DVD, there's a lot of really cool documentaries. One about the the post-mortem photography, one about the, the hauntings in general and paranormal activity, and then there's uh, a documentary about um, the the real the supposed real life events, and they're great. This one is sort of on par with the special featured release of From Hell, as far as all of the like proprietary documentaries that come along with it. Yeah, yeah, and and you know this is this is long before we're in the realm of specialty markets, basically giving us collectors editions of movies that. You never thought that you would ever see a collector's edition for Exorcist 2, collector's edition. Why? (laughs) (laughs) Because Exorcist 3 would come right after that, and you'd have to buy that, right? But this Maple Pictures is uh, an arm of Lionsgate, and Mm -hmm. it uh, does the Canadian releases. And I've definitely seen some Maple releasing around here, and it could be part of the Canadian angle. A lot of this was, I don't know if it was shot, I'm just going to guess maybe it was shot in partially British Columbia, maybe not, but a lot of the post was done in BC. A friend of mine worked in the sound department, Chris Ray. Yeah. So, little stuff like that, or the guy that played, who I think is the best actor in this, when Eric Berg is from Winnipeg originally, and he plays Jonah Mm. in this film. Yeah, and we'll talk a little more about Jonah and how how fun he is, what a great life he had. Yeah, he had it all, if you think about it, in 1920s sensibilities. Yeah, he sure did. But yeah, uh, I really like the documentaries on this. And I'd almost forgotten, you know, sometimes when you watch extras, you don't really care about them or whatever. It's Mm -hmm. not like, you know, watching a a four-hour documentary on one film or one franchise. It's just a little half-hour throwaway thing, usually. But when you were talking about what was on this disc, it all came back to me. Mm -hmm. And it's probably exactly why, this film is exactly why, I became so fascinated with Memento Mori photography Mm -hmm. to the point of going to bookstores, trying to hunt down these two huge volumes of, of massive uh, coffee table books of Memento Mori photography. Never found it, but when I went to Muter Museum in Pennsylvania with Chris, I had picked up Beyond the Dark Veil, which is the Thanatos collection. I don't know if it's for sale everywhere, but it's definitely for sale at the Muter Museum, and it has a really grand collection, and probably some of the photos that you see in this film are in this book, and it has not just a collection of photos, but it has newspaper articles to go along with them, the names of the family, the years the photos were taken, if it was taken on a daguerreotype, silver halide, if it was a glass neg, like little informations like that. 
specifically the ages of the people that died, the names for the most part, which is the most important thing because they are, after all, a memento mori. Remember, you will die. And to have the names attached, it's not just a random curio at that point, which they sort of are in this film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this film will educate you if you're not too familiar with some of the uh, long lost practices of uh, taking photos of your loved ones after they passed away. Um, also the idea of, they don't go into too much detail other than the fact that such things existed. This is not something invented for a movie. This is something that, you know, was a very common practice, especially, you know, in the 1800s and stuff like that, 1850 area and stuff like that it was really popular to get this process done. But then also the idea of, uh, the, how en vogue seances were. And how you could become famous and uh, make a lot of money. We have a, an heirloom book in my family called Fortune Telling for Fun and Popularity. And it's a, <laughs> an eight, late 1890s hardcover book on fortune telling. And it details how to have a seance. Mm. Right. And, and then, and then uh, uh, ectoplasm. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Uh, That's the one thing. They sort of they, they give you a gentle primer on memento mori photography which is wonderful there's a throwaway line i believe the character wendy says it's sad that this is probably the only photo they ever had taken of them or something to that effect mm -hmm. which is very true and it's things that get your little your little mind going but do they spend a library scene or two on fucking ectoplasm and and seances and stuff like that and it's sort of like this is the stuff that the general populace might have a better idea of but the thing that's truly fascinating you just sort of like mention here and there Ugh, mm -hmm. unfortunate yeah but, yeah the ectoplasm thing particularly since a lot of those ectoplasm photos very famously are hoaxes They're exactly <laughs> and that's the one thing that they don't do in this is ever not one of them says it's almost always muslin or cheesecloth or gauze or a tool like that's what they're using to mm -hmm. fake ectoplasm mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, very famously too and you're right so the, the the more fantastic things that have been disproven again and again they spend a lot more time talking about as opposed to the thing that's actually real they're just like oh it's just photos of people of the dead and they have two scenes really talking about it uh, and there's a couple of scenes of discovery as well I mean, Jesus, if I can, uh, mom doesn't even realize what she's looking at until she sees one in a casket. Yeah, which that is kind of cute. The first time she looks at one of the photos, which if you've seen Memento Mori photos, you kind of know that that one person's dead because they're being propped up. And the next photo is sort of a little more obvious, but she's still like, oh, look at these nice photos. And you can see the dread just melt on Virginia Madsen's face and just like, oh, what am I touching? And then she puts on gloves and gets a dustpan to deal with the shit. She, f she puts the photos in the garbage upside down and puts newspaper on it. Like dirty things they are. Like dirty things, right? She is she is a cat burying her shame. What is awesome is that she does that with photos. Imagine if she had known what was going on in the walls. Holy fucking shit! No one knows what's going on in the walls. Do you know what's going on in the walls? How I, do you know that I'm not packed with corpses here? <laughs> I think I would notice the smell, even embalmed bodies. For after nearly a century, just mustifying in the walls there. And the sheer volume. Of the souls screeching for safety and... 
No, no, the sheer freedom? volume of just meat. Oh, okay. <laughs> the volume of the soul screaming, which is like all I can hear. But that's the other Canadian connection, is that they do talk about these little rhymes in this film, uh, little like, conundrum rhymes, and I don't know what the actual term for them is, but one was written in the late 1890s by a Canadian, and it's called Antigonish, and it was written about a haunting in Antigonish, not the haunting in Connecticut, it's the haunting in Antigonish, about the man who wasn't there. Mm, I've even heard this one. Yeah. I don't remember all of it. Um, there was a man who wasn't there. I saw him one day on the stair. Mm-hmm. Oh, I wish he wasn't there. I don't know. Yeah. Something like that. Something I wish he would go away. Yeah. This man who wasn't there. He was there again today. Oh, I wish he'd go away. Something yeah. like that. That was written by a Canadian, so... Well, that's interesting to know. That used to be a weird, uh, I just would have assumed as a child it was a nursery rhyme, like so many other nursery rhymes that I used to uh, have read to me or or that I would read in a book. There was a book, and I believe the first time I ever read it, um, in school, you had these uh, books that were reading material that was essentially supposed to help you get better and the, the one, primers yeah yeah and and the one that i had was called silver steps and silver steps led to gold steps and i suppose beforehand was bronze step i.e the reading would get more challenging as you ascended the stairs and these silver steps contained uh, the the man who wasn't there rhyme oh, and cool. that was the first time i ever had it and also proudly the first book that i ever read start to finish um i had a really difficult time learning how to read as a child so uh that was uh my big accomplishment i think that i had read it in highlights magazine and it was a little collection much like that that was distributed to schools when i was younger and the other one that was in there was one my grandmother used to say quite often and uh, a few friends of mine would say often as i grew up was early one morning in the middle of the night, two dead boys got up to fight. Back to back, they faced each other, drew their swords, and shot each other. A dead policeman heard the noise and came and killed the two dead boys. This uh, rhyme is in the movie, and I had never heard it before. I wasn't sure if this was something that was made just for the movie, but you're telling me no. Oh, no, yeah. That's one I know off by heart. Like, I, I, can't, I flubbed my way through Antigonish, but that one... That one I used to say so often. My grandmother used to say it. And she had a few other ones of these like little conundrums and nonsensical little rhymes mm-hmm. um, that would contradict themselves within themselves. Lovely stuff for a kid's brain. Really mm-hmm. lovely stuff. Especially the morbidity of it all. Because both of them are about yeah. hauntings and murder, right? Yeah. But it's used to very good effect in this film. Speaking of, we used to talk about The Conjuring earlier. Conjuring 2, The Crooked Man uh, story is in that. The yeah. best, the best thing about that movie. The is- fucking best thing about that. <laughs> I love that rhyme too. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like rhymes. I do. That's mostly why I wanted to do this. <laughs> it's not just that thread running from haunted house film to haunted house film. It's a, it's a thread all through Splatter Pitcher's history of nursery rhymes, Wes. That's right. So if I need to get you excited about a movie, we just need to go ahead and find a rhyme in in a film. Yes, yes, that would make me extremely happy. Speaking of this thread, we had noticed something uh, about sometimes you guys, when we're doing these things, well, there's a very obvious thread between films. Like, for example, The Haunting in Connecticut, we were going to do something else entirely. But during a conversation that Liz and I had while we watched the movie, we don't talk during the movies often, but we do talk a little bit. Um, 
And we somehow brought up the haunting in Connecticut. There was a scene in, in Amityville that's very similar to a scene in haunting in Connecticut. And I guess we just, it just sparked from there. Yeah. Yeah. It usually goes, Oh man, you want to do that? I have that movie. Oh yeah, let's do it. Okay. We're doing it next. Great. Mm-hmm. And then we- sometimes we take a hard left. Like we were had planned to take the hard left uh, and find a thread, but this one was a very clear one, but there's, a deeper thread. There is a very interesting deep thread. As you guys know, we we came off of Amityville, and now we're doing The Haunting in Connecticut. And beforehand, we were still in Stephen King of Palooza. We did Pet Cemetery. Now, I always kind of just assume that Stephen King of Palooza is its own entity, so we don't necessarily need to have a thread. Although sometimes weird things do come about that we weren't even planning. This time, it was the fact that while I was writing the little blurb, my Westkeeper blurb for the release of our Pet Cemetery episode, I decided to watch the trailer because I like to see how how did how did the the marketers try to hype this movie to the masses? See if I can hype the episode to you guys. It's my method, if you must know. And now you do. I noticed this moment the trailer started. Some very familiar music. I'm not going to sing it. I did <laughs> sing it earlier, but that's not for everyone. And it, it was it was haunting, guys. Let me tell you, haunting like ghosts of Amityville, because they use the theme song to Amityville Horror in the trailer for Pet Cemetery. Of all things, like it's not even really about the same fucking thing. No. I can see if they used it in Haunting Connecticut, but this was a lot more hip. 2009. Yeah. Kind of soundscape they have going on here. But that is crazy. And what's crazy is I love the theme music for Amityville. I'm surprised I didn't notice it if they use it in Pet Cemetery, which I think they do. I think they do too. Yeah. It's weird. It's it's weird how you just we were both talking about how when we're sitting in front of a movie, a lot of the times we're thinking of it as a singular experience. So our brains are kind of shut off to everything else. Almost presenting it as if we've never seen another horror movie. What's this movie telling us? Yes. Which is a good way to go, I think. But that is what I noticed. So I thought it was really interesting. It was like the last Stephen King Apalooza we did when we did Cujo. We fucking released the episode on, like, fucking International Dog Day. Yeah, yeah. Or something. And I said, aha, there you go. It's magic, man. It's magic. <laughs> and the fact that we do sit down and watch these as singular experiences, it's a bloody wonder we notice these threads between movies that, they, <laughs> that exist. Especially, I know for a fact that a lot of our listeners come for our so-called encyclopedic knowledge of horror. And I'm just like, no, 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 this is the only horror movie that exists, right? Right. Mm. (laughs) But anyway, what's this movie about anyways, Lydia? This movie is about how it doesn't even fucking matter if you see the house and buy a house or rent a house sight unseen and move your whole family into a haunted house. You can even see the house and have it be a very convenient and good idea and still fuck up. (laughs) Let this be a lesson to everybody. Ask the person selling you a house if they have bodies stacked in the walls like sandbags. Could be, yeah. Like, And if it is a funeral home, send your niece to the library to do some research. A little bit of microfiche, a little bit of city planning. She probably went to the town hall. Things like well, yeah, because she got she got a, a, a map of uh, of when they built the highway. Yeah, yeah, not a hard thing to find. It would have taken her more than an hour 
to do all of this. It probably would have taken her several trips and a couple hundred dollars in fees, really, honestly. Mm-hmm. But if that's what you got to do, that's what you got to do. I would rent a funeral home. I would live in a mortuary. That's fine. That's fine. I would probably do some research. But, I mean, if you're worried about shit like this, like this God-fearing family is, mm-hmm. send your niece to the library first. Yeah. Seems like a good idea. I know I did miss the detail the very first time I saw this film that she was not a sister. She was a niece Mm -hmm. because that's something that's tossed out at the beginning of the film. That is accurate to the, the life uh, the, the true life uh, family that this is based off of Um, who thankfully they changed the names in this to Campbell. So it's actually really easy to pronounce. Yeah, no, very true. I like that. They had also used the last name of the funeral home had been Aikman's funeral Mm -hmm. home. So, Anyone who likes that darker horror and quiet horror fiction may be uh, familiar with Aikman. So it just adds another creepy vibe. They might as well call it Lovecraft, right? Like <laughs> that, that definitely works. This film starts out with um, a mom caring for her son, who's like a young teenager who has cancer. And they're driving back and forth from wherever the fuck they live to Connecticut for his treatment. So they're doing like six-hour drives and sometimes eight hours because he's very ill on these drives home and they can't just stay wherever in a Ronald McDonald house or what have you. Uh, They do have to drive back and forth for this cancer treatment. They don't say what kind of cancer he has, but he is getting brain scans, although they do say that it's going into the brain. So it's not really clear what sort of cancer he has. He just has like general cancer. There's a lot of different varieties of cancer. It could really be anything. Uh, in the, the real life uh, story, he had gotten uh, a very serious, uh, quick growing tumor on his neck. Mm-hmm. And that was seemed to be the source of the cancer in the first place, even after they removed the tumor. Um, you know, it was still, uh, pretty touch and go. And they used experimental treatment to try to, to get him out, uh, out of the woods, uh, so to speak. That experimental treatment, was the reason why they needed to go back and forth in the drives. His mother, Sarah, was worried that it would be the reason why he would die. He, You know, the poison is the cure in, in the can- situations of cancer, but fuck, man, that plus these long drives would take the toll on anybody. If young Matt was 50, 60 years old, like the, the treatment probably would have just killed him. Yeah, yeah. So him being young and now that they can live closer because she says what she she pulls what she says uh, is an executive decision and hauls off and rents his house. She'd been looking at houses. She saw this house. She was told it was a funeral home. That kind of didn't sit well with her because she's a very devout Christian and Catholic at that. And she had decided against this house. But the next time they were in Connecticut, she just pulled a Yui and went and stayed there that night because Matt was too sick. Yeah. But even from the get-go, oh, there's trouble brewing. This is where Matt's watching his old-timey TV and he turns it off. And they do this technique multiple times in this film through reflection that you're seeing silhouettes and shadows of people who aren't there. A bunch of Mr. Nobodies. A bunch of Mr. Nobodies. And mostly just this one gentleman, like a a youngish guy, you know, um, a man, some sort of man. Uh, the, definitely the man who wasn't there. Or later on, the, one of the two dead boys who gets up to fight in a way. Because that's mm-hmm. really the, the crux of this story, right? But there are a lot of, you know, some people would, would not like it, call it like attempted jump scares. None of them really come across as jump scares. Or 
that it's overused, but I think it's used subtly enough that I enjoy it very much. And this is the sort of haunted house that I would like. If I'm going to have a haunted house, I want them to be present and around and everywhere and every uh, reflection and around every corner. I mean, I apparently do have a gentleman that hangs out the bottom of the stairs, but he's only very rarely seen. I wish him to make a little more of a presence, a little more of an effort. These ghosts make an effort. They definitely make an effort. And they are, what do you say, enveloping the family as the family settles in. It's not an instance in which Matt is the only person experiencing these things. But he is, and this will be articulated to us uh, by uh, the, the Reverend Nicholas, that those who are walking between worlds, i.e. people who are alive but are quite close to death, have more of a connection to the afterlife. And so people who have both feet planted firmly in the realm of the living um, don't really have these experiences. And so they are drawn to Matt and he to them. The yeah. basement calls to Hungry ghosts. And being a teenage boy, you know, you can sort of pass off. Yeah, he wants to sleep in the basement because it's cool down there. I'd want to sleep down there. It's fucking awesome. But Listen, I cannot relate to some creepy dude that just wants to spend all of his time in a dank basement. Oh, yes, you can. <laughs> Mr. Alta Vista Basement Classic Wes himself. <laughs> no, it makes total sense to me. Yeah. If, if I, uh, you know, I did sleep down in the basement for a period of time uh, when my room was occupied, uh, and I, fuck, I may as well slept in the basement for all the time I spent in there, uh, times when I didn't have my room occupied. So I totally get it. Teen boy has got to have his basement. And his dad even throws out a line, something like that. But now it is like, like beside where they did the morgue work, the wet work. They don't know that, though. They find that out and he still continues to sleep down there. Well, you can do a lot of things with a blood pit, Lids. Yeah, you're right. Okay, I get it. And they really ought to sold all of those antique. Holy shit, you're not kidding. There's antique bottles that may have fetched a, a fairly good price. There's things that could have ended up in museums. Things that Muter Museum would have probably been interested in uh, or other curiosity shops. Or just the tools. A medical museum would have been interested in all of these things. But the family, like, largely ignores. But Matt is always drawn to... Which the only time they really go into it is to scare his younger brother. That apparently actually happened. His his, his brother was spun on the examination table in such a fashion. Matt, <laughs> I know that Matt is, is under a lot of stress. Um, regular chemo is devastating to the body. And people have, quote unquote, good days and bad days. Mm-hmm. And on bad days, their temperament... A volatile, lethargic, just a, a general sense of malaise, hopelessness. They could be a very uh, challenging people to be around, but you kind of have to grin and bear it because I'm as as uncomfortable as they're making you, it's worse for them. Oh, yes. Having cancer is a very challenging thing yeah. as well. If you think it's bad dealing with somebody who's uh, not themselves, I mean, imagine being taken over by something that is forcing you to behave like that. And yeah. Yeah, it is uh, an unbelievable thing to put the human body through. Absolutely. And there's another layer to all of this because it's not uncommon for within this experimental treatment that Matt could be seeing things. So he has a vested interest in keeping a lid on this type of shit, which I genuinely like. This gives a good 
uh, explanation in your script to pull the taffy on why Matt is not just coming clean with his parents that he's seeing things. And little stuff like, I like the scene where the, the dishes are put on the table and then he turns around the dishes are back on the counter and then he turns around to the table and then the dishes all of a sudden fall out of thin air onto the floor. And it's a, a nice little head fuck for the audience and you can see it's a nice little head fuck for matt too because it, if we're to be in his shoes he's not seeing things this is a ghost doing this as a poltergeist activity but from his mom's point of view is like you better not be seeing things so he has to make up the excuse of oh i tipped the dishes i'm sorry i set them too close to the edge so i really like the setup for this as well there's a lot of aspects about the the mother um denying that her son is dying that I really dislike, that really grate on me. So I'm not even really going to get into those because, you know, watch it for yourself and make up your own mind. Um, I just really balk at that sort of sentiment, that overdone, triple dialed up sentiment when it's already, yes, warranted and understood how she feels, but it's it's dialed up too, too high. But the fact that she is being extremely overbearing with this only because she wants him to finish this therapy that could be causing all of these things that he's seeing. It's, it is like, I agree a very wonderful level to this script writing. I also do dig uh, the types of hallucinations that he's having with ghost stories like this. You can really go in a myriad of directions and in a lot of stories, they opt to uh, tell rather than show. A, a lot of it is subtle. A lot of it is, um, you, you know, you're, you're you're working to really maintain a PG thirteen rating. That's that, these haunting films. I think if if any more died in the wool hardcore horror fans uh, have a object to these films being so prevalent is that oftentimes they're not very explicit um and which you know a time and place the hunting in connecticut well we did watch the uncut version uh, and and since i didn't see the theatrical version i don't know really what the difference is but i could guess um when you're dealing with this subject matter of a morgue and necromancy and what is residing in the house, not just spiritually, but physically, it's difficult to rein that in in a way that is not at a certain level of gore. So you are mopping up buckets of blood. His hand is collapsing into a pillar, and it seems as though the house itself is just full of meats and maggots and and uh, uh, gross shit. It almost is Lovecraftian in its bizarreness you do have eyelids getting clipped and you do have bodies getting carved up you have teeth being removed it, it, it it's uh it, you know it, it, in a lot of scenes it's really more medical than explicit but at the same time this film is showing you a lot of pretty graphic imagery and graphic ideas Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And even in the little stuff, we have a puke take, which is always fun. Little tiny yeah. puke takes. He vomits a lot. It's the eyelid slicing that I think would get under most people's skin. There's other <laughs> scenes later on that actually get more under my skin than that. But yeah, the uh, eyelid slicing would probably turn a lot of people off. It's done fairly well. I mean, they could have paid a little more attention to how the eyelashes looked on the fake eyelid, I think. But still, it's it seemed a little there. long. Yeah. yeah, and a little sparse and weird. But they're also cadavers. They are cadavers, and 
it's not as though this is a funeral home, but a lot of these bodies aren't exactly um, fresh. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really hard to say how long uh, some of these people had been dead for. We do know that the bodies have been sitting there for a little while. But the family has no idea that any of this is going on, even though as time passes, things are getting increasingly more dramatic with the, shall we call them, episodes that are occurring. Because it's not just Matt that's seeing these things. That in itself, a haunting in a story, would put strain on a family. You know that there is things going on in the family. I mean, the the whole reason why their niece Wendy is there is because her parents are going through a divorce and it's a nightmare for her living there. And so she has been taken in by this family as along with her sister. Meanwhile, uh, Sarah and Peter are on the ropes too. We know that Peter has had a, a drinking problem and that is uh, underlying pretty much everything. And not only that, but there's something uh, very cringy about both these parents, I mean, I know Sarah more for you, but I cannot stand uh, Peter just as a man, just yeah. as just as a person who deals with stress and crisis in this way, who almost is is like willfully obtuse, just aloof on the best of cases and on the worst cases, just angry and distant because yeah. he just doesn't want to deal with it. And so he's kind of leaving Sarah. And I understand that he's got a business to run and he's the one that's, that's putting that, uh, like is bearing the financial burden of the fact that they have a, a mortgage, another mortgage now. And then, uh, they're paying rent on this place. And then, of course, everything else that they need. Cause I'm, I'm imagining Matt's experimental treatment ain't cheap. Yeah. Because I can't forget as a Canadian citizen that healthcare is not covered. Even very serious healthcare like this, uh, mm -hmm. they're probably spending hundreds of thousand dollars trying to keep him alive, and yeah, that's under they're under a lot of pressure. But yeah, they're not handling it very fucking well at all. Yeah. And I mean, him, him to even be shitty, the husband so sells his truck, which is some sort of classic truck. It's probably worth a pretty penny, so that he can pay bills and mortgage and rent and all of this stuff. And he's really shitty about it. Just the way that that conversation happens grates on me as well. There, there's something so fucking off-putting to me about people who... I understand that money stresses people out. I get it. I, I was uh, very poor for many years. I get it. But it just if you had to sell your truck, think about why you're doing it. And being a petulant fucking child about it. Like, I had to sell my truck. Like, yeah. that's basically what he's like. Yeah. And I, and I just want to fucking punch him right in the face. I was like, you're a fucking cock, man. And I, and like trying to make, like, what's your point? Like, like who are you trying to make feel bad? Your cancer-ridden son or your wife that's holding the family together? Yeah, exactly. While you're absent, willfully absent of that. Yeah. And the thing I dislike the most about him is most more subtle because almost every time he talks to the, the kids, specifically Matt with cancer, it's basically translates to me as, remember when you didn't have cancer when we did this? Remember when you didn't have cancer we did that? Remember yeah. when you didn't have cancer and we did this? Remember when you didn't have cancer and I was happy, although I was a drunk and abusive? But yeah. remember when you didn't have cancer and yeah. we you fall asleep looking at the stars? Fucking bullshit like that. Very fucking annoying. Super subtle, but very fucking annoying. Uh, 
hand in hand with the mother denying death continuously, scene after scene. And if there's any way to cope with death or someone else who is facing dying who seems to be really coming to good terms with the idea of dying is explore that with them. Don't sit there and deny it. Mm-hmm. Unreal. Yeah. Very dislikable. And, you know, the the other, like, the kids aren't very good actors. Luckily, the kids don't have a lot of screen time. So they don't really contribute much. But, I mean, it really comes down to Matt and Jonah being what carries the story entirely. Because we haven't really met Jonah yet. No, no. We've we've met, we, we have in a way, but not in a really explicit way. We have seen a slant, a slanty guy. Slanty guy. He's very burnt he looks like um uh bill paxton in near dark like he's that he's that burnt he does he is he is that burnt so he's basically the burnt ghoul the unnamed burnt ghoul up until this point and there's mm-hmm. some lidless ghouls eyelidless ghouls mm-hmm. they can be uh, you know that you're dealing with them when uh, you get close-ups of their hands and their bodies or and they have uh I mean, it looks like Aramaic or Greek or whatever the fuck. It's not even. It is English because... Is it actually? Yeah. At the beginning, Aikman is carving these sigils and and letters that look like Aramaic or Greek or something, but he's muttering. And then if you look really close, you start to see words Mm. like burnt and gone and soul and suspiria. There you go. Yeah, and that one's kind of like this big Argento fan. <laughs> it, it's got to be. It is. It uh, comes from a Greek word that means to breathe, and mm. gets translated roughly as to sigh, mm-hmm. or he sighed, they sighed, you sighed. Uh, suspiria. That's what suspiria means, and it's in in this. So it has to do with the breath, which is kind of fitting because they do show a lot of scenes of Jonah experiencing this ectoplasm during a seance because he's a reportedly a very powerful medium we know that because of the level of ectoplasm just shooting out of his fucking mouth we also know that because of the fact that like what seven people died or five people died during one of his seances Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is actually pretty interesting because back in those days as we had said earlier in the episode seances were a big draw they were it was a fad and it was almost like in the same way that nowadays you have fucking escape rooms and you have now, like I've been seeing constantly, everyone's going knife throwing. Have you, like, have you, has anyone? I think axe throwing was such a big Or axe thing. throwing, yeah. yeah and, and, throwing. And, and stuff like that. Fucking, it seems like these things come in waves where everyone suddenly is like, oh, me and my friends are going to escape rooms. Like me and my friends are going karaokeing. Me and my friends are going axe throwing. Axe throwing seems to be a fairly recent one. I don't know if there's just been a bunch of establishments that all decided together one rainy afternoon. Let's all just open a bunch of bars where you throw axes too. Um, in th- you make it sound so ludicrous, but yeah, it's not for me. I'd rather go to a medium. Thanks very much. Yeah. There are, there is like a psychical research, um, establishment here in ottawa and there mm-hmm. are here peppered among different larger cities i'm sure uh it used to be so much more popular and mm-hmm. well before like john edwards and that like tv psychic and stuff yeah, like yeah, that. yeah this was like parlor home for fun and popularity psychics <laughs> yeah and that was that was my point thanks for bringing me back to it sometimes i need a leash uh it's that that is what it's almost like your friends would go to a a medium to a seance and try to contact the dead as just a fun a fun evening 
Um, almost like you're doing like a murder mystery type fucking bullshit. I can cite a bajillion examples, I guess, but so I feel bad for these people because they probably came from far and wide. Sort of. Aikman, except Aikman is the real deal. Aikman, yeah, Aikman is. He was in the paper. He was a big fucking deal. This is all going on in the history of this building. In real life, they didn't have any of this explanation. So this is where I suppose the controversy uh, of a of a true story comes out. What happened in real life was that a family supposedly was in this house, and a bunch of events occurred. And it's funny, even in the documentaries, the the, the people producing the the movie bragging about how how much activity that this house had going on so they could cherry pick the best events yet they still needed to invent this entire backstory but it's the backstory that i love so much i agree because i was thinking about it as we were watching the the, uh climax of this film i was thinking oh man i guess it would have been pretty fucking lame movie if it was just and a bunch of weird stuff happened and we just moved like that because that is what actually happened and this is far more cinematic far more uh interesting and the backstory really is what i also love about this film and it's the backstory that sticks in your mind as well Mm -hmm. let alone the climax scene of what is behind the walls not mm-hmm. that that's a spoilery because we've mentioned it several fucking times yeah we really we really i was like oh, we're jumping off the gate just talking about bodies in the wall now i guess it's important to establish that because that does become the thing that people think about with this film oh completely aikman was very um entrepreneurial let's Ooh. say and he not only had a funeral home he was using the funeral home to Uh, subvert bodies from the local cemetery which the niece finds out later on that a bunch of coffins were buried with sandbags we've had a teaser of that because some of the visions matt is getting that could be blamed on his treatment could be blamed on the hauntings that there was coffins being filled with sandbags in this house and the bodies were used by aikman to amplify the sitting at the seance that Jonah was doing and because he was already a very powerful medium to begin with. So using necromancy to amplify and trap these souls in there and keep these souls aware and vigilant and as a huge magnet for the souls of the dead, he became like the Harry Houdini of his time. As far as mediums go, I think Mm -hmm. that famous is what they were trying to get at there with that. And so Aikman was just like an entrepreneurial bastard with his, you know, necromancy and side hustle of doing these seances, which is probably the huge money draw, because I don't know how much money there would have been in, in the funeral home at that point. I, I'm not exactly sure. Um, what I love about Aikman as the visual of this character, it is just such a quintessential 20s evil guy he's got a pointy beard that's been sculpted just so and the the circular reflective glasses are such a great touch it does not allow you ever to see his eyes which is wonderful so you wonder does he have eyelids too does he not have eyelids um it's it's very comic booky in in how um or anime in a way like it kind of reminds me of like a lot of the characters in that helsing series just 
just glasses, reflections. You never see their fucking eyes, and it's all for dramatic effect. And even when he's hunched over in the dark, there's reflection on his glasses. The lenses are always either showing you the bodies that they're looking at or uh, Jonah himself or uh, people at the seance, but you are never seeing into his eyes. And I just think that's such a great... For for a, 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 this inscrupulous bastard... It's just such a great touch to have that. and But the rest of him, he just looks so proper. He just yeah. looks so put together. Everything just so. Like Albert Fish. Yeah. Like picture Albert Fish with some circular glasses, little John Lennon glasses. Mm. glasses. Maybe he ate people too. He could have. He could have. It looked like he did. Yeah. Have a little <laughs> nosh while he's packing his walls. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. I like these scenes a lot too, the flashback scenes, because they feature this Eric Berg as Jonah, who has no last name. I, I almost want to say Jonah Aikman, but I don't think he was his son. No, he was just like I, a he, helper boy yeah. that he took under his wing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the acting out of this kid, he has very few lines in this, but oh my God, you do end up feeling for him even more so than Matt. Matt is seeing a lot of the history of what went on in this house in bits and snippets through being forced to see what Jonah had endured. Um, Basically, sort of how his death had gone down, how his final seance has gone down, how he was forced to be a medium by Aikman, and how he was forced to deal with these dead bodies while Aikman did all of his rituals and incantations. Right. And it really... You do end up feeling for him more than Matt in the sense that really what the the Campbell family is is a captive audience to a story that happened almost a hundred years ago um, they are this is the dead wanting you to see what was done to them wanting you to see the indignities that they suffered in death and how their spirits were trapped within this house and also the tragedy of Jonah of a person who was probably plucked by Ackman who did not probably fully understand his own ability, something that he could just do. And this adult saw a way to profit off of this. And then when things were going well, it wasn't enough that Jonah was just a powerful medium. He needs to be the most powerful medium. And I'll accomplish that through necromancy. And I don't care if Jonah objects. I don't care if anyone objects. He's essentially a fucking boy slave living in this funeral home, making Ackman rich. And then everyone, and, and then on his deathbed, deathbed, when he, when, uh, whatever, when with his last ounce of strength, Ackman says, they're going to come after you now. And they do. And Jonah is burned alive for his troubles. That is the tragedy of this boy and this house, this monstrous funeral home that is an affront to the natural progression of death and the dignity of the body towards the end. And, 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 and really like as bad as I feel for Matt, because you know, he's a young kid and he has cancer and, and the treatments of self that in alone is his personal tragedy. The haunting is just, if anything, it's a good thing that Matt ended up there because of the fact that he was on the brink of death. He probably was the most 
able to finally bear witness to what has occurred here. Short of another medium. Yeah, exactly. With powers like the crow that can like transfer your memories into them <laughs> so they can understand your story and your plight. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no one, no one's better suited than Matt. Although it does come in little snippets and bits that mm-hmm. it's not very clear. And it takes a while for the ghosts to power up. You know, I think it's sort of like Hull House where it takes them a while to really, mm-hmm. you know, suck in all that, the sex juices or whatever it is that those ghosts thrived on. These are thriving on his death juices. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, I've heard in a lot of uh, paranormal instances that it takes a lot of acknowledgement. You need to acknowledge the things happening around you. So ghostly uh, uh, presences and poltergeist activity ramps up the more you acknowledge it. Unlike the Geff uh, story in Clyde Barker, where you ignore it, it ignore it, it gets worse and worse. But <laughs> yeah. this is the opposite. I like that technique in this film where the ghosts are getting closer and closer on screen. Because at first, it's uh, distant reflections. Mm-hmm. Or you think you see somebody. Or, you know, the the door passes. And the ghosts aren't, like, in people's faces. Mm-hmm. And they're certainly not in the face of the audience. But as the movie progresses, um, up until about, like, the four-fifths of the way through, they're slowly creeping closer and closer until we get, like, full frontal visions of what Jonah looks like. Mm-hmm. And we can recognize him from the visions as well. Because even at the beginning, we don't see this burnt cadaver or not we can't even tell it's burned it's a shadowy cadaver that's sort mm-hmm. of slanted walking uh we don't immediately say oh that's that kid from that photo no yeah and i'm because and, and like we we're saying the healthier people in the household wendy uh the other siblings they're not experiencing these things these presences are around them but they're oblivious to them for the most part it's not until, like you were saying, like almost more than halfway through the film that these presences start making themselves known to even people who are alive and well, have both feet planted firmly in the world of the living. They don't, uh, they don't really even understand what's going on. They think this is all part of Matt's sickness. Reverend uh, Nicholas has already explained this to them, that the healthy are maybe not as susceptible to all of this, but they need to listen to Matt and what he's saying. Uh, Matt is deteriorating. So aside from everyone dealing with their own familial problems and the fact that they have a family member that is um, at the brink of death, uh, quite honestly, they're dealing with all of that and they're dealing with like the other like monetary concerns. The fact that they are starting to see things here and there themselves. Matt is not himself at all. Not just because he's going undergoing treatment or because he's dealing with all of these visions. So he tries to talk to his cousin about a little bit. And she does become his ally as the movie progresses. But there is a point where no one's really on his side. He's not really telling anyone. We as the audience are seeing how ramped up these visions are getting. Where he is, yeah, pulling his hand away from the wall with handfuls of gore and muck. He's seeing blood and burnt people fucking everywhere. Coffins. It's terrifying shit that he is seeing. Mm -hmm. And still that confusion as to whether this is a vision or not. He's still undergoing treatments, but he is acting a lot like the father from the Lutz family in Amityville. A terrifying person who is in a stupor, who is really neither here nor there, and is somewhere in between worlds in a myriad of ways, and is not pleasant, very fucking scary. And this all sort of culminates in a wonderful um, 
hide and seek game where the ghosts finally do really terrorize the younger brother, which I really, really like this scene. There's like a dumbwaiter, which I suspect what we understand goes down. It's not just a dumbwaiter. It's like a coffin-sized dumbwaiter. Yeah. So you can present the coffins upstairs in the funeral home and then wheel the coffins downstairs on this little coffin elevator. Yeah. It's a coffin elevator. Yeah, that's what I think it is, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it goes into the crematorium. It definitely does. And, well, that seems like a good hiding place. There's a lot of little nooks and crannies in this house uh, that's great for small children to scare the shit out of each other with. But, wow, this little boy, he's not having it. Oh, no. And it is basically Jonah that we learned that is in that coffin elevator Mm -hmm. all burnt up and comes face to face with him. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but the young girl, uh, when she's up in the attic, she falls to the floor. And within that floor, not only is there mealworms, but there is a tin box. And within that tin box, Lids, it's a smaller tin box. And within that tin box eyelids oh, i thought they were dragging clitorises like in human centipede three no so no. no one's snacking on them no no they are indeed eyelids they don't know that not until the good reverend uh will come over and tell them they're not sure what they are uh i get i i can't blame them for that i mean i'd look at them and say well this looks like skin but and they have hair on them so i don't know but they really have no fucking idea not only is there eyelids but there's also more post-mortem photos yeah yeah a little more visceral ones than what we had had and actually quite a stack of the fucking things Mm -hmm. yeah and you start to wonder what does all this possibly mean what does it really mean that's when they have their library scene i will say with the library scene i wish they had spent more time pulling the taffy on this and the and here's why I first of all I like library scenes and microfiche. I love I have in great big capitals library scene with four fancy exclamation points. <laughs> so what I would like is them to have space this out a little bit because you have wendy doing a couple of things oh my god like i said it would have taken her weeks and a couple bucks yeah i i really would have liked this to be ongoing research that is that they are trying to figure out just the two of them you don't need to involve the parents you don't need to involve the wee ones you can just have wendy and matt there that's your fucking duo now wendy has to do a lot of the legwork because matt is is weak why can't we have her talking to librarians why can't we have her talking to city planners now you say that's a lot of waste of time yeah but this movie oh I could, you could sacrifice other things, in my opinion. Oh yeah, like a lot of the interactions between the mom and the I don't, dad. I don't, I don't need to could see. Could have had a little more Reverend Nicholas too. Yeah, I don't need to see Sad Dad playing his guitar, throwing his vodka around. You could have a different scene uh, that I could find more interesting. Microfiche. Microfiche, more microfiche. But again, that's just my personal preference because what you really get is kind of just like an MTV. Uh, version of a library scene where it's a lot of like quick cuts and spinning cameras and and jazzy music and hip hop montage hip- and you get an info dump at the end of that instead of this nice slow organic progression yeah. that better mirrors the amount of research she would have had to do mm-hmm. especially being just some kind of fucking hipstery mall goth type girl 
Yeah, you don't really know. She's, they're not from there. I would have liked the final piece of the puzzle to be the, the when she went to the city planners, when she went to the city yeah. hall and gotten that highway map. It's always a highway. It's always like, and they built a highway. Like in Psycho? Yeah, exactly. That's what fucks everything up. Yeah, exactly. Pet Cemetery, it's a fucking highway. Mm-hmm. It's always these highways, man. It's like everyone's always s- sort of taking a swipe at development of any kind like poltergeist it's not a highway but they built a neighborhood like a cheap neighborhood and it's always about you've built over a burial ground or a cemetery of some kind or no wonder we have these screaming memes that are crying about the the buses and stuff here and the gentrification (laughs) and the infill housing and stuff like that the monstrosities Mm. and all that you know i say bring it on bring you it know on. when uh, when they were doing the 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 piping sorry gang this is a narrow cast of people who live in ottawa canada but um do you know when they were uh they were replacing all the sewage downtown and they dug up all the shit what did they find a fucking graveyard i know i wanted to go down there and just sort of see if i could just like accidentally steal a skull from the big pit they were digging and 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 i and i i was reading it and i was like jesus christ guys like this is if you don't think a bunch of fucking groovy ghoulies are going to come out of the ground because not only was it graves that they had no idea that they were there they were of people who they have no idea that they uh, there was a graveyard there most of most of the bodies got moved except for very poor people in unmarked graves i was like this is the tragedy that you fucking read about in a library scene like the haunting in connecticut Mm -hmm. that's why i based a story on called midway park that is about them bulldozing fucking mass graves in the city, which they have actually done, and make a little park out of all the cemeteries they had to empty out because they were digging up, laying down fiber optic cables or whatever, discovered a fucking cemetery, had no idea who these people were, and then just bulldoze them into a pile, put some sod on it, and a gazebo. <laughs> They've done that here in this in this city, and yeah. it made for a very good story. And Pray Light Eve Two now available on audio. You can find it on iTunes. Ah, oh, shit, loving the plugs. Yeah, I'm not very good at it, but anyway, that is totally what fed that. And I've always had a fascination with that. Let alone from things like Pet Cemetery, where there's a burial ground nearby, Poltergeist, where there's a burial ground underneath you, and this one where there's a burial ground kind of made. Uh, into the walls. The house is the burial ground. That is the unique aspect of this. It's yeah. not underneath the earth. And now, uh, Reverend Nicholas is going to posit that it's possible that these bodies are on the property somewhere, which we've seen, like we just said, a hundred times. Yeah. Uh, I could see that being really cringeworthy that he, you know, in a huge coup de grace goes and rescues the bones and saves that tortured soul of Jonas. He scoops up all of the ashes in such a great scene because he was being there consoling Matt and Wendy after they discovered all of these horrible things about the house. He had explained what the fucking box of eyelids was for. He had explained a lot about what the restless spirits were all about here and what the medium ship had actually done there and what had happened with all of those bodies, supposedly, perhaps. But at least the one body who he felt was still trapped there was Jonah. Mm-hmm. So after being kicked out of the house by the mom in the most aggravating scene, probably in the film... He is invited back because everyone is seeing things now. When uh, the mother is there consoling Matt on the bed and the spirit of, of Jonah has actually left 
the moratorium area and it, or the the it's not the moratorium area the fucking um the fucking wood door you know that they open and mm-hmm. shit like that the he and then he's like walking closer and closer to him almost like when you like have like those fucking videos of like the dogs or you go like that you put the camera away and then it comes and back they have and some like, electrical difficulties yeah yeah electrical difficulties and shit like that like without the light bulbs because fucking sad dad became mad dad and then he like fucking took the light bulbs out like a petulant child and so they've had like crazy crazy experiences um of having like door slamming poltergeist activity all of the furniture piled in one corner matt scratching at the walls like scrabbling at the walls like an animal till his fingers are bleeding and he seems to be taken over by whatever these spirits are the spirits are visible to other people so the mom has finally given in and called the reverend the kind reverend back who's going to use a magnet cross yeah yeah i tack shit man i guess it's it's so hard to Listen, when these paranormal people are are coming to your house, they 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 just tell you their weird shit so matter of factly. Now, now to be fair, he is a guy that seems to dabble in the paranormal, but he is a reverend uh, first and foremost. So it's not unlikely that he would have all these things. But just like the matter of fact explanation, it's magnet. It's just magnets. It's a magnet. It's magnets. You know, it's it's iron, and that's why they have iron bars in a prison to keep the evil in. Not just, not just, uh, not just keep the bodies in, but the evilness too. Yeah, sure, All sure, right. sure thing, uh, Mr. Cateus. I believe him because he is a fantastic human being. Yeah, but Elias yeah. Cateus is a great actor, and he does a really great job in this role. He truly, he truly does. He's one of the highlights, next to Jonah, mm-hmm. the guy playing Jonah. Um, but this this scene's pretty fun. He you know goes and rescues the bones, and it's all good. And even though he's sick with cancer himself, because that's how he met Matt was while they were both undergoing treatment, he's not doing too good physically. And it takes a toll on him crawling around under the house, digging up the ashes of poor old dead Jonah. Yeah, I got to make sure there's everything that's in there. Now, again, this is this was a, a crematorium. So, I mean, the fact that he could get anything out of that, even that little piece of bone is kind of remarkable. But mm-hmm. he did manage to get some stuff and you'd think almost that he's going to meet his untimely demise as the spirit of Jonah ends up in the back but we think everything's fine all the second Jonah's body has left the house everything everything seems to be fine now there might be like in an earthquake tremors where some paranormal activity happens but it will only last a day or two Maximum, and then, like you know, the ghost of Jonah's peering in the uh, basement window. He's so sad. He's almost like a fucking guy that just got kicked out of the club. Just like, hey guys, can, what? It's me, Jonah. I mean, you, you, I'll wait out here, I guess. Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> He's all the food rotting too. At first, you're thinking, okay, this is what he means by little tremors, little aftershocks. Open the fridge, all the food's rotting. Look at the bread and fruit that you just saw a second ago, and it's rotted and green. You mm-hmm. know, little stuff like that. We can cope with that. He does erupt into this necromantic writing. Which is fucking fascinating because we've seen a lot of it just in little montages and little fits and starts and grainy flashback kind of footage of all of this script written on somebody. They don't do quite as good of a job and none of it's legible. I don't think we'd have to like stop it and look, but I haven't gone through that sort of trouble. Um, But yeah, Matt all of a sudden is covered in writing. His 
moms, what have you done to yourself? Like, okay. All right. After That's, we've all been through this, yeah. He's like, you're right, mom. I, I stood here with a scalpel and I just decided to carve in on myself intricate symbols that I have no idea what they mean all over my front, all over my back. Then I decided to yell in pain. Yeah. <laughs> okay, mom. And especially when I'd be down here all of 10 fucking minutes. It's like we just had a, basically an exorcism in the house too. And now you're just like, what have you done to yourself? <laughs> Unreal. But they would go to the hospital, which leaves it to like a very interesting setup of this, this sort of culmination of every, like the storyline here. It comes to its apex while they're at the hospital. Matt sort of is having these visions continuing and visitations from Jonah because now Jonah's body's outside of the house. He can mm. kind of roam free and kind of do what he wants and talk to who he wants to. That's the way I see it anyway. This is ring logic. Yeah. The, this is, you know, you think that the, the, the solution was to get a spirit out of there. This is not like uh, Samara, which is like, oh, whoops, we we took the cork off of uh, some hideously evil little girl. Yeah. Um, what they did was, was they got rid of the only thing protecting them from what's really in the house. Because he was a good ghost. He was a good ghost. He looked not so good, but he was a good ghost. Yeah, do not judge a book by its very burnt cover. Mm-hmm. Now, Jonah does almost cause an accident with the good reverend. Yeah. He, I honestly, when I remember initially watching the movie, I was just thinking, oh, yeah, this guy's toast. Yeah, totally. Like every other fucking movie. Yeah, but exactly. no, uh, he kind of explains to him with the crow style memory transfer thing mm-hmm. of exactly what it's gone on. The Reverend calls the house. Of course, their phone rings to nothing because everyone's at the fucking hospital or nearly dying in the shower because yeah, right when we're being told that. The cork is off the bottle in a way. All of these restless spirits that were basically trapped and kept under control by the spirit of Jonah being there and being able to kind of wrangle them all. Now that he's gone, they're angry, they're evil, and they're out for blood, basically. They're to do what what they were meant to do. Haunt the fucking shit out of everybody. But don't worry about old Matt... Even though that the doctors even say that according to his numbers, there's no reason why he should even be alive right now. Uh, he is going to grab an axe and leave. Now, this is Shades of Amityville. Very much Shades of Amityville or even The Shining. Even The Shining, Someone yeah. possessed by the house or something and he's stalking through the house and the family members are scattering because it's the kids left, basically. Yeah. The parents are still at the hospital. They're on their way back from the hospital. You- yeah. The reverend's out of the picture because he's not feeling too well, and he just almost crashed his car. He's probably scared shitless. Yeah, he tried calling the tried calling the house there, uh, you know, on the payphone back in the. We needed payphones even in two thousand and nine. Kids, we yeah. needed fucking payphones sometimes. Yeah. But Matt comes stalking up the front step with an axe. He's slamming the axe through doors to get into a room. He's not saying much, but I guess her he name is Wendy. She's screaming as he fucking axes through a door. Oh, perfect! That is so fitting. Right. If we hadn't done The Shining, I'd say let's do The Shining. Uh, <laughs> like, exactly. Really. But very much like in Amityville, you have a woman getting terrorized by a dude who's you know not her husband but a loved one, a cousin, and still out of it, like still out still of out of it. And there's two uh, children. Yeah. Uh, you know, not three, but two, and and 
that's that's what uh, that's the situation. Now, before Matt had left the hospital, I'd forgotten to mention that Jonah did appear to him and just sort of stare at him and looked like he was going to maybe have another uh, ectoplasmic episode. We'll no, call he's doing it. like a Candyman thing. Where he's like, very, he's my uh, whole story, man. Very appropriate for Virginia Madsen, isn't it? Though, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So many threads, so, so many threads, so many threads, so many threads. You know, I was thinking about the fact that when we get to our climax, because what. Matt is going to do is he's going to axe the fucking walls and it's not gonna you're not gonna want to know why he's doing it for very long because this place is lousy with bodies it is lousy with bodies (laughs) there are bodies in every single wall and he grabs the kids and yeah like you're still you know what he's doing you get what he's doing but you're still sort of like He's unhinged, and he could attack these children. You still sort of get the idea. So I really do enjoy the tension that they've built in here. Whether you're susceptible to it or not, it's worked. Mm -hmm. So he's, like, ushering the kids out, and he's slamming the door, and he's yelling at Wendy, stay out, get out, and whatever you do, don't let them put out the fire. So you're like, oh, shit, he's going to burn himself in the whole house. Yeah, she says, what about you? I'm dead already. Yeah. Pretty cool uh, bit of dialogue. I liked it a lot. Slams the door shut. And then he just takes... Let me ask you this. And we talked about this a little bit as we were watching the movie. What do you think this fucking smells like? What do you think that many bodies... Now, granted, they were probably embalmed. Um, I mean, we know they were. But also, we know that the highway got moved. So a lot of those bodies were freshly taken from graves. Who knows how long they were sitting there? At least some of them could have been like a couple of years even. Um, Those bodies get moved. They get carved up, wrapped up like mummies, stuffed within the walls for 90 years. Um, And then, just to make sure things burn good, he douses them with fucking... As old formaldehyde. I think it probably smells like a combination of my grandmother's dusty old attic, the steamer trunk up there specifically, and my neighbor's garbage on garbage day. Not my immediate neighbor, but nearby. There's some people that just, they're garbage. I don't know how they accomplish the stink of garbage, but it is like the cartoon levels of fucking garbage stink. Stink lines, flies uh, buzzing around. Exactly. No, it truly the is. S- fish skeletons sitting on top. I wouldn't doubt it if I had looked, but I'm so scared I just hustle by. But yeah, it, it smells like that mixed with a fresh new beach ball from the dollar store. <laughs> That's a very uh, very specific smell. That's what you asked, man. There's my recipe for this stink. Ugh! And then he just sets it all on fire. <laughs> yeah, which I'd like to think that the smell of all that old wood that would be kind of sweet... Smelling mm-hmm. maybe all that maple and teak and stuff or whatever it's made out of, a mm-hmm. walnut, that it would smell good after a couple of days. But at first, yeah, this fire must have just been rancid. Yeah. I was going to say that after all of this, all, all this shit is burning and his parents come back from the hospital and the reverend even manages to get his car going in the right direction and fucking gets to the house. You have Virginia Madsen, candy lady herself sitting with her son in a burning building. And I was wondering, I was like, this is the time where she can sit amongst a pile of burning wood and doesn't end up a vengeful uh, mirror ghost. Yeah. Like she does. I wouldn't have mind everyone dying in this, you know what I mean? But <laughs> they make it out of the house because it's a feel-good film. It is a feel-good they film. They basically sit on the bumper of an ambulance because that's what you do. Yeah. 
styrofoam cup blanket over you. Yeah, yeah. Not quite that bad. He's on the ground getting CPR and it is touch and go for a little bit. And the ghost of Jonah kind of comes and hangs out for a bit. Yeah, leaves his body and then you realize he is no longer possessed. And also, the moment that Matt is in the house by itself as it burns and he takes the tin box and he throws all the photos into the fire and then he takes the eyelids and he throws those into the fire. All of the ghosts uh, surround him and you can't really tell if it is uh they're grateful because fire is this purification that will set their spirits finally free and we've been told since time immemorial that that's what we want we want to be put to rest right yeah we want to be put to rest and or if they are getting freed but at the peak of their manifestation and their attitude is like oh no you're gonna die here too like you matthew you're mm-hmm. gonna die. I can't really tell they the, because you know, it's hard to really tell uh, if if a carved up body with no eyelids is grateful or not. But it is. They have lack of expression, and they're also just sort of wound up automatons at this point. Yeah, they really are. They really are. There's not a whole lot to them. They like just, I'm sure if, if you ask each personal ghost, um, like before you became this denizen of this necromancer that would you want to be laid to rest they'd probably be like yeah yeah i'd rather that but you can't because they're not themselves anymore mm-hmm. there is something uh hauntingly beautiful about looking at a lot of these post-mortem photos as they burn because they the camera keeps showing us these photos of them as they burn or even as he's ripping the walls down and then it keeps cutting back to what they look like now like look these it's so easy to forget uh, with um, you know violent deaths that we see and yes we're watching a a story where there's cool necromancy going on but this movie takes a minute to to shine the lens on the fact that no remember when these were living people they were normal people they were not different from you whatsoever and now look at them wrapped up in fucking stuffed in a wall looking monstrous looking like these demons that haunt our dreams but they that is the 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 end result of what was done to them and that's the tragedy um and it could be you stuffed in those walls so you know it's like i i like how i don't know if they're really trying to to garner sympathy of the dead but they do from me at the very least yeah, they definitely do. And it's a shame we're not rolling into Hellraiser after that, because that was just touching what you had to say. Remind <laughs> me so much of our Palace of Cenobites, really, truly. Yeah. Except that they went chase, like chasing pleasure and pain. That's true. Unlike these poor folk. No, no. These people lived their lives and got sick and they died, or they died of, of natural causes, and then uh, they were desecrated. Or were murderers, like one of the photos in Beyond the Dark Veil is a lovely family. It's a husband and wife and their child. And it looks so touching until you read the caption and you're like, this girl shot her husband through the heart and then mortally wounded their daughter and then killed herself. And they're all like buried together like a little portrait. It's wonderful. But I, was, I was wondering about that photo. Isn't that lovely stuff? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the one with the really nice casket? That was, yeah. Oh, yeah. spared no expense. I know, right? <laughs> but there is there is, there is a, a, a feel-good... It seems like a Hollywood ending, but apparently this is what did occur. Matt's cancer cleared up. Cancer can. It can. It, it can that, be. It's a, it's a weird... 
it's a weird thing. Yeah. Sometimes cancer comes and goes. People respond to treatments. People don't respond to treatments. I'm not saying that it's the ghosts, but it's the ghosts. It's not the ghosts. It's the ghosts, Lydia. That's what we're meant to believe. Okay, okay. It was the ghosts. It was like it was like the end of. That's a- what her fucking Scully voiceover tells us too. <laughs> it. Was- <laughs> That's a deep cut, man. That is that is what that was, wasn't it? It really was. It started out with a bit of Scully. It was a Scully episode of X Files. That's all this was. I didn't mind it. I was an X Files fan at the time. So was Wendy Scully the whole time. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh <sighs> That explains kind of like the gothy, stripy hoodie that she was wearing. It definitely Scully does. was kind of gothy in a, in a weird way. She would have been. Right? She had a secret goth phase, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It was like the very bright red hair and always the bright red lipstick and the very pale skin and stuff like that. Always wearing the black pantsuits. Well, she was a fed. You got to wear black. It's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, that was The Haunting in Connecticut. And... A wonderful, wonderful little ghost story. It goes really good hand-in-hand with the Amityville horror, I feel. It really does. And I think, uh, as we were talking about beforehand, the bulk of these films that were coming out in the early aughts, when it was really, in a funny way, a lot more diverse, these films are still coming out. But it really is just one or two studios that are continuously making them. And the biggest one is Blumhouse. Yeah. And But back in the day, there was a lot of different people from, you know, Fox and Warner Brothers and Lionsgate and all all the derivations and, and subgroups and whatever the fuck. They were all getting in on this phase of horror and so you got some different flavors you got some more violent ones you got ones that were you know just remakes of j-horror you got ones that were pg-13 and 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 it was a wonderful pastiche where i think that uh the argument of this homogenized version of popular horror hadn't really culminated yet. And so when you look back at the turn of the 21st century, there are still gems like this. I think The Hunting in Connecticut really stands out amongst a lot of films that were coming out. Like then. Ghost Ship. Like Ghost Ship, yeah. Yeah, like Ghost Ship. I'll just boil it all down to Ghost Ship. That's a very violent movie. It's a very violent movie for four seconds, and it is like more, largely forgettable. Like, yeah. It does sort of just blend in to all of those films that were coming out at the time. It's true. Although I do think about those people eating the poison soup all the time. Yeah. Because they have the 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 wire scene at the beginning that everybody remembers, which I'm pretty sure is the only reason why that film was ever made. Like I was like, I think you just wanted to make this one scene and yeah. then who cares about the rest of it? But everyone forgets about the jazzy sexy slow montage where everyone on the ship gets fucking killed including the people who committed all the murders so it's fucking uh it's a fucking uh it's a weird trip that we have referenced ghost ship a couple times i think that over the next like when we're getting into our wintry ghost stories and stuff like that we should maybe maybe set sail on the seven seas You never know. But what do we have next for them? Next, we have not Ghost Ship. We do not have Ghost Ship. Not Hellraiser. Not Hellraiser. And not Puss in Boots. Not Puss in Boots. Instead, we have Wes's version of Puss in Boots. It is my Puss in Boots. Yeah, it is your Puss in Boots. We have Friday the 13th, part two, and then part three. 
That's right. We are heading into the month of October. That means that it, it is the time of celebration. It's where Lydia and I are at our most powerful. At our most powerful and my most regretful. <laughs> it's a commentary track. Guys. It is a commentary track. Lydia hates them, but she bears it because she likes me, tolerates you guys, and we have a blast fucking doing them. Mm. Uh, at least they're easy edits. They're easy edits, and I entertain Wes, and it, it is. It's nice and easy edits, because October's a pretty important month for both of us, and mm-hmm. we have a lot of, you know, stuff to do, like watching a lot of movies, alone in our homes. Alone in our homes, like, not being bothered by anybody, but we still want to make sure we deliver you that fat dick content. It'll be a nice thing for people to listen to while we're off doing other Halloween-y things, mm-hmm. and I have my wedding anniversary that is around that time mm-hmm. there will be hopefully a wicked library now i will urge anyone that likes horror fiction especially those radio plays and things like that because some of them are very radio play style some of them are straight up readings recitations of horror fiction the wicked library is one of the my all-time favorite horror fiction podcasts and i've been featured on there a couple times a lot of great authors have been featured on there don't get me wrong Al going back and Neil Gaiman, a lot of like larger names too. Uh, Jessica McHugh. I can't even think of all of the Stephen Graham Jones, I think has been on there. A lot of really big names, but always coming up on Halloween. They're going to have a Halloween episode and I have submitted something. We'll see how that goes. I shouldn't, I, I shouldn't be jinxing myself by even mentioning it, but I can't fucking help it because I like the Wicked Library and I especially like their Halloween episodes. And I especially like our Halloween episodes, even though it's a commentary track. <laughs> well, fingers crossed that you get in the Wicked Library and just to boost our chances, stuff your new walls with bodies. I will totally stuff my new walls with bodies. <laughs> I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air.